Bhumagyana timirandasya Gyananjana salakaya Chakshurumiritam Yena tasmai shri gurave nama Ajanulambita bhujo kanakabhadato Sankirtanayaka pitaro kamalaya takso Vishpambaro dvijagaro yugadharma palo Vande jagat priyakaro karunabhutaro Shri Guru Vaishnav Guru Parampara ki jai Good evening everyone Welcome So we have a short discussion from Bhagavad Gita Tonight we're reading from the seventh chapter Text 3 Manushanam sahasreshu kaschidyatati siddhaye Yatatam apisidhanam Out of many thousands of persons, one may strive for perfection. And among those who attain perfection, only a very rare soul knows me in truth. So this is Bhagavan Sri Krishna speaking. And as I mentioned, this is the third verse of the seventh chapter of Bhagavad Gita. I think that uh, some of you may be familiar with Bhagavad Gita. So, forgive me if um seems too elementary for you. But um, the first six chapters of the Gita deal primarily with the nature of the self, among other things, but as I say, primarily the nature of the self, Atma, the soul, the unit of consciousness that, according to Vedanta, we are. Whereas uh, the second six chapters, there are 18 chapters in the Bhagavad Gita, the second six chapters deal more with knowledge of the Godhead. So there's a, there's a famous Upanishadic dictum, Tattvam Asi, Tattvam Asi, so Tattvam Asi. Tvam means you. So the first six chapters deal with you, with us, what you are, what we are. And it is said that we are that. Tattvamasi, tat means that. That's a common translation of it. And so the second six chapters deals primarily with that. It's kind of confusing. <laughs> you are that. The first six chapters deal with you. And the second six chapters deal with that, which is also you. So, some explanation is required. As I mentioned, Tattvamasi is often rendered into English, you are that, that referring to the absolute. But um, it's not the only way to render this. And uh, it's a, perhaps a beginning and rudimentary way of rendering this dictum or aphorism of the sutras. Let me give you an example of what I mean by that. If we were to ask ourselves what one thing in the world most resembles God, what would, we, what would be the answer? What thing in the world most resembles God? That's a good answer. We do. Now that may sound rather um, proud, <laughs> that we most resemble God. Uh, but what is meant by that, of course, is that we are conscious. We are consciousness. 
as opposed to matter. We're the experiencer. Matter is experienced. The car is driven. The driver does the driving. The television is watched. The viewer turns it on. So matter is animated, if you will, or brought to life by way of consciousness extending itself into matter. And we are of the nature of consciousness. We are the constant observer of the ever-changing material phenomena that's here today and gone tomorrow, here today and gone tomorrow. So because we are of the nature of consciousness, according to Vedanta, we most resemble God rather than any other manifestation of matter, which is not an enduring manifestation, which is not a conscious one, is inanimate, and animate only to the extent that we have lent ourselves to it and thereby animated it. So because we are of the nature of consciousness and the Godhead is of the nature of the conscious of consciousness, we are the most similar thing in the world that we could find to God. But there's also a big difference between ourselves and God. So as they say in a rudimentary way, this may be translated Tatvamasi, you are that, which means you are Brahman, you are the absolute, you are God. It's kind of a starting point, if you will. If we were living in a cave, two of us, and we had never seen light, sunlight, and one of us managed to go outside and experience all that is sunlight, which is more than just bright effulgence, it's warmth, it's heat, it's the vegetation without which it cannot grow, it's rain, so many things. And so now to go back into the cave and explain, if you were to go outside, and I hadn't been to me, what is the sun? I saw the sun, you say. So I'm trying to measure by my standards of darkness where there's no vegetation, there's no light, it's cold in the cave, there's no heat. So you, you have the task now of explaining to me what is heat, what is light, what is vegetation, and how this is all the, the sun and, and more and so forth. It's peace of mind. It's like on a sunny day, your mind becomes not peaceful, but enlivened even. So you have a big task to try to explain to me, the cave dweller in the dark, what is the sun that you've just seen. Where do you begin? It's like, how do you teach a deaf person what is music? It's a very difficult thing to do. The task is something like that. So maybe if you could poke a hole in the wall of the cave and a ray of the sunlight would come through. You could say, this is the sun, this is the sun. And I could start to get an idea. Now, when you point to, the, to that just glimmer of light and say, that's the sun, I'm getting some idea of what the sun is, but the full idea I'm still quite a distance from. So when we say that we, in this world, are that which most resembles God, Tatvamasi, we are that. We are of the nature of that. Consciousness, this is only a beginning understanding. When we play out the whole idea, as much as can be done in words and with thought, as to what is God, the nature of the Absolute, then we start to find, oh, we're very also different from the Godhead. We're one in a qualitative sense. We're of the nature of consciousness. But what is a spark of the fire? 
in relation to the whole fire. Spark won't heat the room, and separated from the main body of fire, it may tend to go out. We won't go out, but we may be covered by matter and develop material consciousness to the extent that we don't know that we exist as a unit of consciousness. We may as well be out, like the spark, out of the fire that's been extinguished. We're like a walking dead person, unaware of ourself. So we are one and similar to God, but different at the same time. So I said that Tatvamasi, translated as you are that, is a very kind of rudimentary and basic type of rendering of the, of the dictum, the aphorism, the sutra. It may also be rendered you are his, or maybe thou art thine. That takes on a whole different, you, you are his, you, you belong to someone. You are one with them in that sense. My children belong to me, I belong to them. I don't mean it in a possessive and manipulative way, but as much as we, our children belong to us, we belong to them also. There's a unity within a family. There's a unity between a husband and a wife. She's mine, and he's mine, she will say also. But you're different at the same time. So a qualitative kind of a oneness, a kind of a oneness in, in person, One, what I want to say is oneness in will, a oneness in desire. You've merged your desires in a relationship where you've adjusted to his desires and he's adjusted to her desires and there's a unity has been forged in this way by way of some, some sacrifice on each person's part. But that's a dynamic kind of unity. It's not a static unity that each individual is extinguished in the context of, of, a, of, a, of a oneness or a unity. It's more of a dynamic unity, like a harmony is a unity of many sounds. It's not a monotone of one sound. If you have sounds that are of different notes that don't go together, it will be disturbing. If in pursuit of peace and a peaceful sound, you do away with all sounds except one, that's kind of a unity, but not very much of a unity, really. But if you somehow harmonize all the notes, then it becomes a wonderful unity, full of variety at the same time. So what Krishna is speaking about here in this chapter of the Bhagavad Gita, the seventh chapter, where the theology of the Gita begins, is himself. The Godhead is talking about himself in a personal context. And so the difference, if you will, between ourselves and the Godhead starts to come out. The difference between the center and the circumference, although they're both part of the circle of life, and how they relate to one another and so forth. How by the, how the, the, the unit on the circumference by giving to the center is nourished. Just like we have a center to our body, for example, in the form of the stomach, where we send the food. And mystically, the food, energy of that food is distributed throughout the body in a way that it wouldn't be if we were to put the food anywhere else. If we were just to keep it in our hand, it wouldn't, the energy of that food would not be distributed uniformly throughout our body. So the center, this is the discussion here in these chapters, and in a very particular way also. The chapter is called Gan Bigyan Yoga, the yoga of 
ostensibly gan, knowledge, and began, which is often rendered as realization. The point being that there's a difference between knowledge and, let's say, wisdom. You can get knowledge by exercising your intellect, but you can only get wisdom by exercising your heart. We can get knowledge in the form of information, but unless we let it in from our head, through our ears, into our head, send it down to our heart and digest it and integrate it and imbibe it, then it's not really wisdom, it's not realized. So gan in Sanskrit means knowledge and vigyan, gan is there in the vigyan also, but vi, vigyan, vi means like special, special knowledge. So in one sense, the special knowledge is, is the wisdom, the realization. But there's another sense in which these two words are used here in this chapter, gan and vigyan. It means two types of knowledge about tat, about that, or about him of whom we are part, to whom we belong. As I said earlier, that is a big subject. Just like the sun is a big subject, what it is, to describe it to someone who's never seen. So the absolute is a big subject, and it's, it's here two, two primary, let's say, aspects of the, of the personality, if you will, of reality, the personality of the absolute are being described. Knowledge of that, or the Godhead, that is approached, united with, in love and realization, in a context of awe and veneration. The Christian idea, to a large extent, uh, gives us a kind of an awe and veneration approach to the great Godhead, for example, to give us a cross-cultural context. We go and the hymns and, uh, and the prayers are full of uh, often uh, speech about the virtues and the greatness and the profundity, the, the, the all-knowing nature of, of the Godhead. Um, so this is a kind of knowledge. In, the, in, the, in Hinduism, we also have this. Uh, the the, uh, the idea of the majestic form of God or Godhead that that cannot be misconstrued to be anything other than extraordinary, the all-powerful Godhead, next to whom we bow in awe and reverence, and uh, and while we are unified in a lo- in a reverential love with Him, at the same time, the reverence causes a kind of a distance between ourselves and the Godhead. We see in this kind of knowledge of the Godhead an object of worship, the Godhead, and ourselves as the worshiper. Ourselves as the uh, worshiper, the Godhead as the worshipped. And so we do worship. Om this and Om that. Offering so many things and, and so forth. A uh, majestic kind of love. This is then gyan. And bigyan, meaning a special kind of knowledge, then about about tut, about that, about the Godhead. This bigyan is knowledge about the Godhead's madhudya, not aishvarya, not majesty, 
but Madhurya. And Madhurya means sweetness. So two distinct uh, aspects of the Godhead, the majestic aspect and the sweet aspect. Krishna, of course, represents the sweet aspect. What do I mean by that? Well, you have seen probably pictures of Krishna or the deity form of Krishna. He's playing the flute, dancing with the milkmaidens, frolicking with the cows and his friends, and very human-like, and um, very, very uh, accessible, practically, if you if you will, very uh, appearing in human society uh, in a pastoral. Uh, intimate kind of uh, leela or, or divine play. So this, when the Godhead, who is all-powerful and majestic, appears in, in a form that is very, that affords intimacy with him, where his majestic aspect is, is suppressed. This is then the madhurdya, the sweet form of the, of the Godhead, whom we can get closer to. The majestic form of God you can love like a prayerful person. The sweet form of God you can love like a friend, like a lover. So this is a very, this is big gyan, this is very kind of special knowledge, kind of uh, secret knowledge, if you will, about the nature of the Absolute. And these two, then, aspects of that that which we belong to, or the Absolute, are described in this chapter. Now, about this sweet aspect here, Krishna has spoken in this verse tonight. He says, Manusyanam sahasreshu kastidyatitisidhaye yadatam apisidhanam kastidmam veti tatvataha. He wants to emphasize here that a couple of things. He says, that the truth about me, in my madhurya feature, in my sweet form, is very rarely realized. He wants to bring Arjun's attention, get Arjun's attention here. He says, I'm going to talk about a certain types of knowledge. We've talked about what you are as a soul. Now I'm going to talk about what I am how there's a unity between us and how there's a difference between us at the same time. And let me tell you this at the onset, he says, realization of me and all that I am in my sweet form is very, very rarely realized, very rarely understood. That realization is very rarely attained. So one purpose in his making this statement is to get his disciple, his student, his friend, Arjun's attention. This is a very special kind of knowledge, I'm mean, very rare, very difficult to attain. So if I start talking about something that's very special, it's very rare, then our tendency is to start to pay attention. He begins on one end of the spectrum and he ends on the other. He ends with himself and realization of himself and how rare it is. And it begins with human life. He says, manusyanam, manusyanam, means here human life, which is, I want to say, rare in itself. What to speak of the realization that's being talked about here and how rare it is. Human life itself is rare. The poet Govindadas says, Nulabhamanavajanama. 
Dulab means difficult, so a rare. Very rare, Manava Janma. Manava Janma means human birth. So while we're going to talk about something far more rare than that, we're called in one sense here in this verse to think about the rarity, for that matter, of human life itself. One of my Guru Bhai, a godbrother of mine, once asked our Gurudev, and my Shiksha Guru, Pujapad Bihar Dev Goswami Maharaj, that um, he said, Guru Maharaj, I feel that in my pursuit of this sweet form of Krishna, the realization of this aspect of that of which we, to which we belong, to whom we belong, I don't feel that I've made much progress. And our Agurumar said, no progress? Not much? He said, but he quoted from, quoted from Padma Purana, a verse describing what was known at the time with regard to the number of species of life. It ends, Chatur Lakshani Manava. Amongst all the forms of life, the human life is the most rare. He said, out of all these forms of life, and if I might elaborate on that for a moment, how many are on the end of our finger? How many microbes are living on the end of a pinhead, for that matter? More than, far more than there are humans on earth. He said, out of all these forms of life, then you now have a human form of life. And in this human form of life, you've come under the guidance of guru and revelation. And you think you haven't made much progress. So much progress you've made. So this is a beautiful vantage point then from which our Gurudev speaks and sees us very generously. We tend to focus in a very kind of local and provincial self-centered sense that doesn't afford us a vision of our context always. We're not the center, but we look and act and conduct ourselves throughout the day as if from a self-centered perspective, which doesn't give us the full, uh, a very comprehensive vision of what we are and where we are, what we're in relation to, which very much determines where we are. Where are you? You're in human life. That's where you are. What time is it? It's human time for us. That's an auspicious time. And let us qualify that. And Manushanam Sahasreshu Kastyadyatati Siddhaya, Krishna says, from human life, that's very rare. And he says, Kastyadyatati Siddhaya. Manushanam Sahasreshu, out of out of many, many, many humans. Humans are rare. Out of many, many thousands of humans, one may come to a program like this. Means one may, may seriously seek a meaning in life. What is the, 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 the measure, the extent to which my human life facilitates my knowing, going, growing, understanding, my becoming my being and being full. It affords us a great opportunity to be full compared to other forms of life. See the facility that we have, the less complex forms of life. Don't have the intellectual uh, capacity to reason about philosophy and to relate to revelation in a thoughtful way. Not only that, more importantly, 
burdened as they are by the demands of the body, as, for example, animals are, more so than humans, they don't have much opportunity to do anything voluntarily, to give. If we call some some of our pets to come and eat, they'll all come. No one will say, excuse me, excuse me, you first. No, no, you did. There's something left. Do you want it? No, they'll all just take as much as they can. We have the opportunity to step back and say, no, you go first and make a sacrifice. And by sacrifice, of course, we have the opportunity to grow immensely because the self, that unit of consciousness, contracts by taking and expands by giving. So human life, very rare opportunity. And within human life, very few humans, one out of a thousand, will be a seeker. And what's meant here by a seeker is to seek out in a systematic way. What does that mean? It means this, that in every form of life there's a built-in system whereby that species can meet its basic necessities. Every species has a need to eat, to sleep, to mate, and to defend itself. And every species, you notice, has a built-in system to do that. Every animal has a defense system, whether it be fast legs, sharp horns, uh, big teeth, uh, the smell of the skunk. Uh, these are all defense systems. They all know what to eat. It's all figured out. Right? They all know how to mate and when. It's all worked out. When to sleep, some sleep at night, some sleep in the day. Some sleep more, some sleep. it's all worked out. There's no alarm clocks required. There's no sleeping pills. There's no birth control. There's no... Uh, it's all worked out. Now we, as a more developed form of life, have these necessities also. But they're very problematic for us to figure out. Why is that when we're a more developed species, more complex species? The reason is because we have another necessity, and it's a greater necessity. And that is this, in human life, we have the necessity to know why. Not how, how to eat, how to sleep, how to make it. These are technological questions, but why? Philosophical questions. Why am I? Why, am I? why do I exist? Why do I have to suffer when I don't want to? Why am I? Who am I? Same line of reasoning. What am I? Who am I? Why am I? Problematic. We might want to just regress. It becomes so problematic, it seems, to the lower forms of life and just eat, sleep, mate, and defend. And some people do that, and they are termed often dvipada, pashu, two-legged animals. Don't avoid this question, why? It arises for a reason, and it can be answered. Why I exist? Why I have to suffer? Why I can't be happy? Can I be happy? Yes, you can. By knowing who you are and what you are, you can act in such a way that you can actually your life can become fulfilled and happy. By not knowing who you are or why you are, then that's the problem. So the question is this then, what is the system within nature that's built in to answer this question that arises in human life when the system is built into nature for other forms of life to answer their basic necessities? And the answer is that, that the system within the world to answer the question of why I am is called revelation, because this is a special kind of knowledge. 
This is the perfect kind of knowledge by which you can become perfectly happy, to become perfectly realized. So perfect knowledge cannot come from within imperfection. We are steeped in imperfection. Therefore, we're not perfectly happy. If we're honest, we say we want to be perfectly happy, and we're not. And any action has to be informed by some knowledge. So if we're to act in such a way as to be perfectly happy, we have to have perfect knowledge. Obviously, we don't have it, because we're not perfectly happy. We're acting in ways that make us unhappy. Ever do something that even your intelligence told you wasn't good for you? Can you remember when you didn't? It might be more easy to answer. We're steeped in imperfection, and perfect knowledge is not going to come out of imperfection. It has to come from perfection. So a perfect means of knowing, then, for the imperfect, begins with acknowledging one's imperfections. That, that is humbling. That may cause the hands to fold and look up. And we may become open to that which comes down. That is called revelation. And, of course, the oldest form of revelation in human society is the, is the Upanishads. And the first attempt to, scholarly attempt to make a systematic theology out of that revelation is there in the form of the Sutra, Vedanta Sutra, and then the commentaries and so forth. And, and so there's a wide body in the East, in India, uh, within uh, Hindu Dharma of, of revelation. And to make, avail oneself to that under good guidance is to systematically pursue the answer to the questions why, whereby the answers to the questions how to eat, how to sleep, how to make, how to defend automatically fall into place. So, here Krishna says, human life is very rare. As we've explained, he said further then, within human life, those who seek to make a solution to human life, to, to exercise the fullness of their humanity, their capacity to think, and their capacity to sacrifice. More importantly, who want to understand how to give, in other words, comprehensively, having figured out, this is the secret of life, that we progress by giving. All along, through so many species of life, we thought we would progress by taking. In human life, this thought dawns upon us, and we have the experience as well. I give and I grow. I get bigger. I, I, I feel more complete. I can't like show it to anybody in terms of a bank account, but they can see it in my eyes. They can feel it in my presence, that I'm a bigger person, a more caring person. That my, be, Being a more caring person means I identify outside of myself. I care about others. Krishna says the yogi, in the end of the previous chapter, who is the highest yogi, is one who sees the pain and the happiness of others as if it were his own, having had that experience. So it's what I mean by a growth of the self, an expansion of the self by giving. We all have experience of this. This is why the world doesn't move in a rational way, because it doesn't stand to reason or mathematics that by giving we will get. But that's our practical experience. So this is the mystery of life. This is the secret of life, actually. Giving is the getting. It, we, we start to experience this 
in human life. So then to catch that point and think, now how can I give systematically in the best possible way? Where can I give my energy that I will... Where's the center? Where's the complete taker? If I'm to give unlimitedly, there has to be some center that can take unlimitedly. This is what Krishna is talking about, himself, the taker. A fellow asked me, your God is Krishna, and he's only, only enjoying. But our God is Christ, and he's sacrificing. Sacrifice is about love, not enjoying. And I said, you're right about that. But if there's a sacrificial manifestation of the Godhead, there has to be an enjoying manifestation of the Godhead on the other end as well. And the nature of that enjoying end is such that because it is the appropriate center and appropriate enjoyer, when it takes, that energy is given back, as I said, mystically, like the stomach gives back to the whole body. And of course, within our tradition, Krishna also takes the position of the sacrificer in the form of Sri Chaitanya, giving up the, the company of, of his dearest in Navadvip, Sachimata, Vishnu Priya, Chaktva Sudhusya Lakshmin, Dharmishtari Vachasa Yaragadaranyam, Mayamrigam Daita Ipsita Mandalava, Vande Mahapurushade Charanada Vindam. Such giving we find in him. And why? Sri Krishna Chaitanya Radha Krishna Nahiyanya. This is why. So, here Krishna is saying human life is rare. Amongst humans, it's rare to find a seeker. And a seeker, it means, who goes about it in a systematic way for knowing. Under good guidance, to understand that which has come down from above, the absolute extending itself to us, perfection reaching out to imperfection. And amongst those who do that, who seek, and seek in a, in a proper way, then he says, Verily, one amongst them knows me in truth. We may think, oh, well, maybe I shouldn't even try <laughs> for this. It's too rare. But that's not the spirit of the verse. The verse is, he's got you here. You're listening. You're reading the Bhagavad Gita. You're a seeker. He's going to talk about, he's talked about that. Tuam, you, what you are. Now he's going to talk about himself, what he's like, and what it's like to be his in every respect, and uh, to know him in that way, comprehensively by love and intimacy, hmm? on those terms. He's going to talk about that, and in such a way that, well, once you know about that, you cannot set, settle for anything less. He's going to draw out from you, in this chapter, what is necessary for you to become that one person who knows him in truth. The kind of one-mindedness, eagerness, the inability to accept anything less, something like this. Uh, this is this is the uh, you know if you are uh, treasure seeker, treasure you want the real thing, you want, the, and you'll sort through many false jewels to find the the, the real the real jewel. <clears throat> so it's a rare thing, he says, but the sweetness of this vigyan that is of the nature of himself that he's going to describe, hearing upon it, 
will fuel us, fuel our pursuit in such a way that we will become successful. So, a few words from Bhagavad Gita. Any, any questions? Or any questions about your experience here? It's nice of you all to come, spend a day here, take a long travel from, from the Bay Area. It's a long journey. and Be up here cooped up in the forest here, cut off from everything important out there. And <laughs> I know you've made a sacrifice. So I appreciate you all coming, taking the time and your interest. I realize that uh, some of these these topics may be not something you're entirely familiar with, so it's hard to follow entirely. But I, I say it to you, I speak to you sincerely from my heart with, uh, with uh, the hope that um, something, you get something from it and uh, it will help to foster your growth and your, and your seeking. Uh, the things uh, which I want to ask, uh, basically, uh, when when you or when when people start to pray to this uh, particular uh, object, like we called called, uh, we, we, I'm talking about culture. Mm-hmm. We talk to we are called the Krishna, this particular physical three-dimensional subject. Uh, how to realize, how to content, is would personally, it hard for me to explain, but do, do we personalize this particular uh, physical object with a God? Or uh, basically for me, uh, God is just completely universe, and I think it, it's a simple and basic, mm-hmm. and uh, there's no, no subject for discussion. Uh, but uh, uh, when in, in Krishnaism, when you uh, start to serve to this particular subject, mm-hmm. form, form, okay. uh, how you it's how you not conflict with the uh, philosophical idea of the un- universe, God being universal. universal. Yeah, it's yes. a good question. The answer is that um, that. Um, have you read Bhagavad Gita? There is, um, I want to say that knowing God, the comprehensive way of knowing is through love. Okay? Through the heart. Through You really know when you love. When you love someone, you really know them. And by loving someone, you will get to know them more than by any other means. If you want to know me, well, if you fall in love with me, then, then you would, then you, <laughs> then you would know me. To know me is to love me. That's yeah. the song. To know, know, know me is to love, love them. It's a song from the fifties, but I don't know how well. So, so similarly, to have space, where do you find the most space? The most room. Now you start to think, well, in my house, and in the city, and in the, in the, in the earth, and the universe, space, there's so much room, right? Now what if you have all the room in the world that you could think of, but you have nobody to love? How accommodating will that space be? Will you be comfortable in that big space? You'll feel uncomfortable. Now what if you have just a little tiny closet, but you love someone and they're in there with you? 
then you feel so much more space. You understand? So affection, what I want to say, affection is all accommodating. So when we think of the Godhead as universal, big, everywhere, then we think to re- that to really think of the Godhead or the Absolute in that way is to think in terms of love and affection. So, when we speak about Krishna, the form of Krishna, let us say we say all forms here are temporary and limiting. So you want to get out of the limiting forms and have more space and not be con- con- constrained and you want to be everywhere and identify with everything and you are that thing, that's something that underlies everything. You're universal, you're not just this little body, you're universal consciousness, you're part of that, that underlies every, every material manifestation. So you've gone from this really kind of confined, selfish, uncomfortable space to the big space of consciousness, Brahman. Now, you come to a place like this, and so you, you, you're familiar with that kind of idea, that's the kind of idea you're talking about. You want to get in touch with the whole and God's everywhere, right? You don't want to be limited. So then you come here and we're talking about the form of God. There's an altar with a form and it seems to get small again. Hmm? But what's happening is this. If you go from Brahman, for example, to Vaikuntha, what we're talking, what is happening is the, the absolute is becoming more, you're getting a more specific focus and specificity is required for affection. In other words, the more you know about a person, also, the more you can love them, if they're lovable. So if Brahman, the Absolute, is all wonderful in in every way, the more specific details you can get about Brahman, the more you're afforded the opportunity for affection and intimacy. So these planets of Vaikuntha, if you will, they're big, but they seem small compared to Brahman. You know, Brahman is all everywhere. And then now you're talking about planets and people and the form of God and so forth. But what's happening is you're moving in terms of affection. And this way it's getting bigger. And when you go to Goloka, it looks even smaller, but it's actually even bigger because the affection is more, the intimacy is more. So love affords universality. And so the altar of the deity affords us some specific information about Brahman and a way to approach Brahman, the absolute, the God that's everywhere, in terms of that information. And in consideration of that, in particular, with a particular method, and this in turn affords us experience and love and affection and intimacy so that we begin to see the universality of our object of worship. It also, in a a smaller way, if you take a form that represents the Absolute and you you focus there in a way that it's difficult to focus everywhere, then this can eventually enable you to actually see and perceive how the object of your love is universal. Hmm? So there's two answers to your question. One is it's part of a system that is, you say that God is everywhere, everyone will agree. But 
in the name of that, you may do nothing to serve God. He's everywhere. Oh, how do you, you know, hard to get a handle on him. So he takes a form that he can be approached by. And by approaching the form on his terms, eventually the universality of that object of worship to deity is realized. But in a higher, in a more profound sense also, the deity or the personal form of the Godhead is more everywhere, if you will, more universal, more all-pervasive. Let me give you another example. Form is a limitation, right? That's how we think about it, right? Here's a form, right? This is a form. It's a limitation. But it's also facilitating. I can rest the book on here. So is form a limitation? Or does it further facilitate? A glass is a form, but it facilitates water so that I can take advantage of it. It's hard to take advantage of water for drinking without a glass. So the form actually facilitates, makes it more accessible, makes the absolute more accessible. God is everywhere, that's true, in everything. Hmm? But, like, take art. What is art without a canvas and without a pen? How will you take advantage of art? So the, the form of the God is, is enables us to take advantage of the Godhead. And there's a whole system here that we have a whole realm of ritual with language and procedures and so forth but which we, with, through which we interact with the form of God that affords us realization, affection and, and understanding of the universality of the Godhead. So the form facilitates understanding the universality of Godhead and at the same time the form is the most expansive manifestation of the Godhead because it's the form, it, that form is a form that you can love. In Bhagavad Gita, Krishna shows Arjuna, the whole universe is in me. And Arjuna goes, oh my God, you're God. Wow. Everything in you. But then he says, but I, I, I want to just see you. So the whole the universality, goes back into him and he's just, he's just Krishna. Because he can't love the universality of Godhead. God's everywhere, well, it's hard to love him. So what you do, you, well, you love people because they're a man. You try to love the animals and the trees and, and so forth. This is still kind of abstract. So my point is specificity. Knowing the specifics about an object gives you greater capacity to, to appreciate it and to love it if it's lovable. So if God is lovable, then the more specifics that we have about God, the more our capacity to love is enhanced. So the form of God is not a limitation actually, uh, but it, it affords us the opportunity to love. So let's say if you don't know the form of God, then how will you love God? What will you do? Well, you do good things for other people, maybe. Because people are manifestations of God. You know, you want to maybe protect the environment because it's God's world. But it's a very 
kind of abstract in comparison to how you love another person. So we're people, we, we, we know what love is, what's the intensity of it, on different levels and so forth. So, so in bhakti, we learn about the, 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 the form of the Godhead and how it facilitates love. And by coming in union of love with the Godhead, then we feel we know the most about Godhead that can be known. And it's not a limitation. So it's a big subject, but these are some some thoughts to consider. I know English, as you prefaced your question, is not your first language, so maybe um, you may understand a little better because you're more familiar. You can yeah, further you understand. You understand? discuss. Yeah. I understand. Yeah. So form facilitates is our experience as much as it limits. The form is facilitating that, giving us an opportunity to love and to focus our attention and show love. Just like, hey, you know what love is, right? You love your kids, you love your parents, you love your wife, you love your husband, and you know how to show it. So, how do you show it to God? It's the same thing. You know what love is. So here's a way you can show love. You can offer food to God, like you offer food to your kids. You got work, and put food on the table for your family. Hmm? Sounds simple, but... The difference is that um, the person whom you love has some kind of reaction. You can, you can interrupt. Mm-hmm. Here you can worship, but it's like one-sided. No, that's where you're wrong, you see. <laughs> <laughs> we wouldn't be here if it was one-sided. Yeah. Yeah. But reciprocation doesn't come right away. But in yoga... This is yoga here. As I said, there's a whole system by which we approach the altar and the deity and so forth, and we get reciprocation. The deity talks, speaks to us. And why not? Right? Yes, and you can have that experience. This is the point. That's the point. So if you think, well, that's nice, and then you think, how do you do it? I don't know if I believe you, but I don't know. Okay, I'll try. So then, then you hear more and you hear more and you think, yeah, maybe that will work. And so maybe I will try that. Then you end up like one of us. <laughs> <laughs> and you tell other people, yeah, this, this, this statue talks to us. And they you're crazy. You live out in the woods, they're crazy. <laughs> but uh, it's, it's true. Um, you know, let's, say, let's take a book, a sacred book. Mm-hmm. You know, if a, here's a book, okay? It's paper, right? It's ink and carbon. That's all it is. Right? Are you sure? Read it. Read it. You see, what's well, much more than that. It looks like it's temporary. I could throw it in the fire and burn it. That's true on one level. But if I approach this book with the right attitude, what do I find? I find that this is a junction between eternity and the temporal. This is the junction, a meeting point, where that which is eternal, that which is infinite, comes within a finite form and a temporal appearance. But what I, if I actually read it, I only find myself growing in terms of eternity and the infinite. My experience is of, of the infinite when I read this, and of eternality as I apply this in my life. So, is it just cardboard and ink? No. 
the deity is the same way, you see. And there's a system for reading the book, actually. And there's a system for approaching the deity. And as you do that in time, then you get that experience. Then you realize this isn't ordinary. In fact, the system of worshipping is found in the book <laughs> also. So when you start to read the book, you start to get something from it. You go, wow, this is... This is, I'm growing by this. This is magical. Every time I open it, the same page says more to me than ever before. It's been read for thousands of years. There are other books like this, too. It's a special kind of group of books, isn't it? We call it Revelation. It's like, uh, so it has a very different effect upon us. We go to the school, we get some books. We read them, we study them. And with these books, we get knowledge. We put the knowledge in our pocket and we use it whenever we want to get more money, to... Whatever. We use that knowledge. You study this book and you start finding this knowledge wants to use me. I have an agenda in life, so I go get knowledge to facilitate my agenda. I want to be a billionaire, so I want to go get knowledge how to invest in the stock market. I want to use that money, that, that knowledge for my agenda. But this kind of knowledge is different. As we read it, we find it has its own agenda. It's alive. <laughs> And I'm on it. <laughs> I'm on its agenda. All of a sudden, my vantage point changes. Oh my God, I think. This is a different kind of knowledge. I'm used to being the subject. The knowledge is the object I take and use for my purpose. Here I find I'm the object. This is the subject. And it wants to use me for its purpose. And it's a high purpose. And a noble purpose. More noble than what I could have thought of myself. I find it uplifting and encouraging. And so I want, to, I want to pursue it. And I get to a page, and then there's the altar, and you do like this. Well, try that too. This is working. It's affecting me. So then I learn that system. I, it says, find a guide. So I find a guide who actually understands this, who can help me, and so forth. And then all of the things, for example, that we do, they start to make sense. Understandably, they don't entirely. Because... You haven't read the book, I know, you know, we're not that familiar with it. But this is a theory. I think you can understand my point. This book is making knowledge of the universality of the God available. This is where people get that kind of knowledge. It's so common that everybody knows. It didn't just pop up in your head. The knowledge of the universality of God, and so, it, all, it all comes from somewhere. It actually comes from revelation. Hmm? That's where it comes from. Sometimes it comes from books, sometimes it comes from, uh, from meditation. Yeah, but where did you learn to meditate? People don't just grow up and meditate. So it's been around for a while and stuff. So people get it, they, you know, and they imbibe it, they take it up, you hear about it. Not too many things come from ourselves. Not too many things at all, in one sense. But at the same time, all knowledge is, is, is in one sense activating that which is within ourselves. So. So just as the book may look like this cardboard, the deity may just look like a stone or a statue or something like that, but it's actually a, a junction, a junction between finite and the infinite, between eternality and that which is temporal, temporary. And by meeting at that junction, and there's a way to make that meeting, there's certain language to speak, ritual, way to conduct oneself and so forth. I don't mean like Sanskrit or Bengali, but I mean... It's a language of the heart, actually, that we're learning here. Hmm? The book contains information, basically, which you can pull out this book, this information. There's a, yeah. It's just a system of storing information. 
Not like it can be tape, it can be DVD, it can be, uh, I don't know, yeah, sure. some, some it can be. Mm-hmm. canvas or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we're talking about uh, these particular things, um, this contains information, there is a, a small something copy of the human body, which is little, which, which you, you cannot pull any information out of that out of particular here. subject. Out of here? Yes. No, but you can. See, that's the thing. That's what I'm saying. You can pull information. It's not a dead thing. It's alive. But there's a system for approaching that whereby you can. See, my experience here is different from yours. This way, I'm asking Yeah. My experience is different. If my experience was only yours, then I wouldn't be here. I mean, if, well, you're here, but... <laughs> but I mean... But, but because I'm getting... What the book says can be gotten from this, for example, it's also a form of meditation. Hmm? The chanting, the arti, there's a whole system. Why we sing at a certain time, why we sing a certain song, it's all part of a whole meditation. It's a whole uh, day, a day in the life of God, and we're part of it. And we live here, we come here, see the God, we walk with Him, we our food, then we work for the God, we come back and show up at a certain time, show ourselves. But we may be seen, and, and and so forth. It's a it's a whole system, and it's lila. We meditate on the lila of Bhagwan of Godhead. It's a big topic, but it's part of the whole system. But suffice to say that if if the Godhead can be manifest in literature through the pen of a realized person, why not through sculpture? Is art not another way of expressing? That which can be expressed in literature and does not a picture is not a picture worth a thousand words for that matter. Mm-hmm. Hmm? So if you can conclude that through the pen deep insight about the absolute can be conveyed, if the pen is in the hands of the right person, then why not through the artist or through the sculptor? These are also mediums of expression. And what, it, what is being expressed in the book but from the heart of the saint reaching out to us? After all, language is also limited. Thought is also limited in terms of this subject. If you want to say the deity, the statue seems like a limited, well, I can say that thought is also limited in terms of a subject that transcends thinking, that is beyond mind. So even to think about it, someone could make the same argument. Well, you know, thinking is limited, so how can I know God by thinking about God? Words are limited, so how can I know God by, by listening to words? The point is that there are certain words, and there are certain thoughts, and there are also certain forms of art and sculpture that are more potent spiritually than others and have the capacity to affect us in ways that ordinary words don't, even though those same spiritually empowered words, forms of art, and so forth, are also limited. They don't fully express the the truth, which cannot fully be expressed in words, which cannot fully be expressed in thought. But there are words, there are thoughts, there are forms of art, sculpture, and so forth, that can push you beyond thought, beyond language, in ways that others cannot, so that you can then know 
But then if you want to tell me about it, you again come down to language. You then again have to come down to thought. You then have to come down to art, and sculpture, and so forth, and music, or song, ways of expressing it. So the means of expressing are always going to be limited. But nonetheless, there are powerful means of expressing that are backed by realization. Hmm? Deep realization and insight from saintly persons. And those words, and those thoughts, and those forms of art will have a powerful influence on us. So the same argument can be made that, well, the, the, the deity is limited just a form of art. Thought is limited. It also can't fully express that the God is everywhere. It's beyond expression. So to, to know, you have to go there. But then nonetheless, some words, as I say, some art, some, some books are more fruitful, more powerful than, than others in this regard because of their source, where they come from. If I know the truth, if I'm fully God-realized, then if I try to express it to you, what is God-realization? I'll be limited by my language and by my capacity to think about it in logical terms so that I can make a logical sentence to you, but still something will be conveyed. Right? If I have the realization. Because the words are only a medium, the thought is only a medium, the realization behind it that has power. So the whole system of worshiping the Vedas this is an empowered system, actually. It's, it hasn't been made up by us. We didn't just, you know, make up a statue and put it here. But this has been going on for been in lineage for thousands of years with much tangible result, spiritual result. So part of the whole system of bhakti. Yes? So, if you're trying to convey something that you have a realization of, and I don't have a realization of that, how do I gain trust in your words? How do I know that it's not just your emotional imagination? How do I, is, there, is there a way to check that what you're trying to convey is actually a revelation? And not just you have to go with your feeling. How do you feel? Don't think that you can know the truth by reasoning. So you should be a little cautious not to approach only by reasoning. You should be reasonable. But the whole point of a speaker who has realized is to stop you from thinking, even though he or she may speak very logically, because you may be attached to thinking about things logically and be insistent upon things making sense. That's your fault. <laughs> Life doesn't have to make sense as it does to you in your head but you're insisted on it. So the kindness of a saint is that he or she speaks about it in such a way as, as far as possible that it will make some sense to you, and then you let something go into your heart. But even if you let nothing go in that you think, it can still go in. And so when we sit before saintly people, if what they say makes us, if we feel good in that company, then that'll have to go on. What if it makes sense, but it doesn't make you feel good? What if it doesn't make sense, but it makes you feel good? And feel good, that's a big, big word, too. Big, 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 big idea. But I mean, you're a serious, serious spiritual seeker. So, you, I came here, to, let's say, I go to a place for spiritual seeking. I get answers that make me go, wow, that's, that uh, makes me feel good. But how do I know it's true? Yeah, I was going to say that. <laughs> what if it makes you... That you have to check. Yes. What we see what will happen in time is a person will, a saintly person will be able to stop you from thinking like that. Because it actually does feel good. It does make you, it is wonderful. 
It, but the reason is that it won't be, is also a doubter. That's why it's not a very good instrument for 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 knowing. It's a, it's a limited instrument. It's a proceed with caution way of knowing. The heart is not like that. You see, that's what you want to get at. Is the heart a reason ruled life? Is a life where you proceed with caution. Okay, does it make sense? Hmm? If you go to the store and you want to buy something to read the label, what's on it? Mm, it's got this and no, I'm not going to eat that. When you're home and your mom says, eat this, she goes, what? Eat it. Why? Because she loves me. She knows what I like. She knows what's good for me. Affection. She has affection. You don't say, what's in it? What You might now because you're... You change your diet, but in general, because she's got so much affection, and you're not. You know, when you're in the home, when you're in the homeland of the heart, then you move freely. And the head stops getting in the way. The only way the head works in the land of the heart, which is the land of service and giving, is to think and reason how to serve best, not whether I should serve or not. You understand? Mother Yasoda reasoned how to serve Krishna best. She put him down when he's sucking her breast, to go tend to the milk that had been gathered from cows, that had been raised on special grasses by Nanda Maharaj, just to keep Krishna at home because he was going out stealing milk from the neighbors. Mm -hmm. She met with a dilemma. Should I put him down while he's sucking my breast? We'll put the child down when he's sucking for the breast of the mother. The mother will... That's not the time to put the child down. But she could have put him down, tended to the milk that was boiling over on the stove, or kept him. She had to use her spiritual intelligence, how to serve best. She put him down. <laughs> that's Tadiya Seva, that's another thing. But, so, uh, the heart has to come out and take precedence. And it's difficult, because either we're not even reason-ruled, we're sensually ruled, and mentally ruled, and our, and our senses and mind are corrupted by lust, so that they work only, so the intelligence, they, they have a union with intelligence, that the intelligence only works to, to take, to find out better ways in which I can take, rather than give. It's the whole corruption of the intelligence. Intelligence should be thought how I can give. And gra- so gradually this you know, feels good, it sounds wonderful, those were great points, and and so well, then we have some reference, okay, he cited the scripture here, that uh, good. it felt good, but that doubting, yeah, that will come. Good association, you keep good association, and eventually that will go away. Because you'll feel satisfied. And you find it, I'm actually growing. I see it, I feel it. It's experienced. You let go. And you listen, and you listen carefully. I don't know, I'm going to listen. You know, maybe I'll accept that, maybe not. And then, Eventually, if I can capture your heart, but then you stop thinking, you're just happy, smiling, you're just nodding head, everything in there, you know? <laughs> <laughs> But then you go away, your head comes back, you see. I'm not sure about that. I had a great experience, but wait, maybe it wasn't as great as I thought it was. <laughs> and I should be careful, because there are, there are imitations and so forth. Because you may be in an environment that fosters that also. And that's very unfortunate, you see. That type of environment is very unfortunate. The community of Gaudiya Vaishnavism, that environment has been fostered, unfortunately. So, but it's natural. That side, that's that's natural. Hmm? So doubt is a is a is a preliminary phase of acquiring intelligence. So in the further stages, there's, there's no really doubt. 
Now, in the beginning verse of this chapter that we're discussing, Krishna says, Samsayam samagramam. He says, I will teach you about me so you will not doubt anymore. In this, in this chapter, I will teach you so you have no doubts about me anymore. In one sense, we're supposed to come and sit before the Guru and doubt. That's what you're supposed to do. Come and doubt. Doubt. That means question. But now, as I mentioned, a systematic way for knowing involves a perfect way of knowing, for knowing the absolute, for knowing perfection. So that's revelation. So first thing the sadhu, the guru, will do is try to awaken our faith in that, both directly and indirectly. Indirectly by, by, by convincing you that your own means of knowing unto yourself with the limited faculties of mind, intelligence, senses, are fruit is futile. Hmm? You understand? So, so many ways he will speak about that, or she will speak about that. In this way, indirectly, as speaker will foster faith in you in another way of knowing, through revelation. Then, the God, once that's awakened, as we call that Shraddha, hmm? then you begin to tread the path. And then, then when you have a doubt, you raise it, and then the Guru answers, and he gives reference from Revelation, for example. He does the Shastra Yukti, he gives reasoning to extend the argument of the scripture to its implications, its ramifications, which is ever growing in new, in, new, in new circumstances. In this way, our doubts are removed, but without that faith, to see the doubt can't be removed. You understand? Without faith in Revelation, then the doubt cannot be moved. Because I give you the re- I give you the answer, and this is what the Revelation says, this is why it says, this is the implication of it, and so forth. And if faith in Revelation has been awakened, then you're sat- your doubt is satisfied. If not, then I still have work to do in, in, in that regard, to awaken faith in, in, in Revelation, in descending way of knowing. So that's, that's the idea. So you come doubt, ask question. And if you're not satisfied, then go away. Well, if you're satisfied and go away, then you really should doubt yourself. <laughs> are you making sense? Are you just? Are you logical even? Are you reasonable? Vedanta asks us to be reasonable. It's a very intense objectivity it, it, it calls us to. You want you want to be objective and rational. Then why do things that aren't in your interest? If your stomach says, "I'm hungry." And so you feed it, and then it says, I'm full. The tongue says, but I want more. Are you going to... And you answer to your tongue, then you're not being rational, are you? You're not being rational. So the Vedanta is about being rational. It's a system for extreme objectivity. Take us away from subject, from emotion and, and uh, the call of the wild, so to speak our senses and all that irrational activity, animal-like activity. It calls us to, to be reasonable, to be sensible. And, and, and part of that, of course, is when you hear it and you know it and it's true and you understand it and you act on it. So the extent that you do that, then you grow and you build a spiritual life. But we hear it, we know it, we don't act on it. So, But in time, then, it's a matter of faith, obviously, and in time and faith comes. Faith is really faith. Really, is experience. You get experience. I like to listen to her. 
I like to listen to him. It makes me feel like good, like you know, like I'm in touch with some potential for being more than what I am, for growth and for myself. So I like to keep that company. This is bhakti. I keep the company of sadhusanga, and faith grows in that company. Then, in good company. So, in this way, eventually, then doubts are retired, and the intelligence is only only working. How can I serve best? In many instances, then we don't need to study the books, except to maybe convince somebody else. So that's you know. And ruchi is another thing. Nishta, you have to study ruchi. Then, what's the point? For Nishta, they had to study. And you have to use intelligence there. Your intelligence properly used, that will, that, will, that will make you fixed. But it will make you flexible also to the nature of the subject. Okay? Therefore, Nishta is, is Trinata Pisa Nijayan. That means flexible, right? You're humble in the blade of grass, you're very flexible. But you're fixed. Kirtaniya Sadhari. This interim goal for you, nishta, fixed in a dynamic sense, therefore flexible. You are fixed in pursuit of this, which you know is 256 shades of gray. It's not black and white. And in, before that, you want something very, very black and white. You can hold on to it, get a handle on it. When you find out it could be like this, though, also this verse could be understood in a different way. Whoa. But that's good for you. Dislodge you from your idea of what Krishna consciousness is. It will be very different than what you think it is now. Hmm? Very different. I mean, there'll be some similarity <laughs> because this is Krishna consciousness too. But brain is very different than sadhana bhakti. Very different. When what you think brain is. What will that be? What do you think Prem is? Anybody even but what is Rupa Goswami trying to say when he describes Prem in so many verses? What is that compared to Prem? When Prem is way beyond thinking. Love is way beyond thinking. So So therefore, with good company, good company, that will that will most rapidly call our progress. To give good company, good association with people who are advanced on the path of, that we are also treading. What could be more valuable for us? So with some thought like that in mind, you you, you come here and say there are some advanced devotees to take advantage. <laughs> All right, so we'll stop there again. Um, hope to see you in the morning at some point before you go at least. <laughs> <laughs>